Our gospel portion for today is the Matthew 13, a series of parables. Please stand as we hear the good news of God. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had, and he bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and when he found one of great value, he went away, and he sold everything he had, and he bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and it caught all kinds of fish. But when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore and then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets and they threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and they'll separate the wicked from the righteous and they'll throw them into the blazing furnace. From there, there'll be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right, before we begin the uh, 56-minute sermon, uh, if you happen to be a child, if you self-identify as a child, then uh, you may want to escape the wrath to come and join Sarah, who will give a, uh, a Sunday school group at the back of the church in the garden. Is there anybody who would like to, to avoid the wrath that is coming? Great! <laughs> I'm also going to, I know I told everybody to turn their phones off, but I'm going to time myself. That's for your protection. Okay? Once I get to 22 minutes, I'm just going to say, Jesus is Lord, and you can do the rest. Let's pray. Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight our rock, our solid ground, and our redeemer. Amen. So I'll begin by um, reminding us that Jesus promised to never leave us or forsake us and to always be present with us. Yes? Fantastic. So then why does the Bible keep urging me to seek the Lord? Did he go somewhere while I wasn't watching? Did I 
Did, did, is, uh, he was here, I know he's, he's right here. So how do I seek the Lord if he's right here? Now, we're in the presence of the Lord, so let's be completely honest. And if we are honest with ourselves, we all acknowledge that there are times and that there are seasons when the presence of God doesn't feel so close anymore. Those could be some dark times in our lives. They could be some very busy times in our lives. And some of those times, we neglect his presence, often by neglecting the word, neglecting our prayers, neglecting the fellowship of the believers. And perhaps it's at those times where we need to make sure that we're back seeking the Lord. Many of our readings this morning had little, little bits of themes of seeking something, something that was incredibly valuable, something that was so precious. And we're told to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything else comes. So here's the question, and it will run through our study this morning. What is it that we are really actually seeking? What are we looking for? Are we here as believers in Jesus because we want comfort? Are we here because we're looking for an easy life? If we believe in Jesus, he'll just take care of us. Isn't that what he's supposed to do? Are we here because we just want to get, a, get, out of jail free, get out of hell free card? Is that, is that what we're here for? What is the world telling us to seek? It's, you know, what, are we, what does the world say? You should look for a socialist utopia. You should look for social justice in every part of the world. All good things, I guess. But what should we be seeking for? I want to read something from... Uh, Deuteronomy, which was not in our readings this morning, just one verse. Uh, Deuteronomy is the book that the Jewish people are reading in the lectionary, in their lectionary cycle right now. And uh, it's an incredible book, The Last Words of Moses. This is the long, single longest monologue in the entire Bible. 34 chapters of a guy just standing up and talking. Not bad from a person who started his career by saying, choose somebody else, Lord, I can't talk. So somewhere between I can't talk to single longest monologue, he's figured it out. All right? Now, if that's not transformation in Jesus, I don't know. So Moses is looking at his people and uh, he begins to go over all of the teachings that they've done. And it's a great study to see what Moses leaves out and what he puts in when he retells the Torah. He's looking at his people who didn't leave Egypt. These are people who were born free. Just because they were born free doesn't mean they don't have authority. They have to go in now and possess the land of, of Canaan. When they do, they're going to set up a moral, a just society where Moses says, nobody has a Torah like you, nobody. 
where, where the words of God reflect every part of our lives, how we deal with the land, how we deal with slaves, how we deal with our, our foreign nations, how we take care of women, how we take care of children, etc., etc. how we take care of our priests and, uh, and, and, and everything. And then he turns around and he says, and in your success, you'll fail. What a great pep talk. You're going to go into exile. In your success, when you're blessed from the Lord and you have houses and cars and big screen TVs and everything good, and it is a blessing from the Lord, he says you'll, you'll forget, you'll neglect the presence of the Lord who's in your midst. Here's the tabernacle, here's the temple. You can all come here and stand before the Lord, but you'll forget him. And then he says something incredible in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 29. But from there, here he's talking about a really dark place. When you're at your worst, when everything seems pretty lost, from there, when you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. When you seek him with all your heart. Isn't that a great promise? That when it looks like we blew it, and we did, then if we turn and seek the Lord with passion and enthusiasm and a, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, then Moses says, you will find him. You will find him. And the prophets reflect that. This is actually quoted again in, Deut- in uh, Jeremiah. Seeking the Lord isn't always for people who are lost, though. Another verse that's not in our readings from 1 Chronicles 22, 19. This is where King David, who has set up all the building material for the temple, and he wasn't allowed to build it. His son will do, do so. And he gathers all the workers together. These workers are believers in God. Some of them, a lot of them are actually Levites. And he says, get ready to build the temple, but, but seek the Lord, your God, with all your heart. Why? They're already believers. You can seek the Lord when you are a believer and you can seek the Lord when you're not. And so in our king's reading, Solomon, who is actually going to uh, build the temple, he's a very interesting character. Uh, He himself, just his very birth, uh, gives us a little hint at the character of the Lord. How many wives does King David have? Way too many. <laughs> okay, he's got eight wives and ten concubines. Okay? And he's got kids by all of them. Now, out of those 18 women, which one produces the Messiah? Bathsheba. We know her name. She's number 18. Now, if God came down and said, Aaron, I'm thinking of uh, producing a Messiah. Which of these wives should I use? I would have said, well, Lord, thanks for asking. How about wife number one? She's actually the daughter of King Saul. She's a real princess. She's perfect to have a, have a king Messiah. And God would say something like, well, that's a pretty good idea. But you know what? I'll take your 17 legal wives, King David, but I'll take the wife where everything's wrong. 
where there was murder and betrayal and adultery and lying. And you, you take a commandment and he probably broke it. And then God says, when everything's dark, I'll bring the light because that's his character. He's always bringing the light into the darkness. And so Solomon, who is not uh, the son of the eldest, he's actually the son of the youngest, which is exactly the pattern that God always chooses. He's always choosing the youngest, not the oldest. The elder will serve the younger, says the Lord. And so this young boy, he goes to Gibeon because there's no temple yet. He hasn't built it. So the Israelites are worshiping in altars all over the country. Okay, it's not a bad thing yet. So uh, he goes and he worships. And as he does, in, he has a dream sequence. There's not lots of dream sequences in the Bible. So when they happen, they're very, very, they've got very, they say something very powerful. God comes to Solomon and says, what would you like? What's your shopping list? Would you like a Tesla? That'll look really weird for the people down there. And what does he ask for? Now, often the heading is God, uh, Solomon asks for wisdom. After all, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I love that sentence because it explains absolutely nothing. Okay? It doesn't tell us what the fear of the Lord is. It doesn't tell us what wisdom is. But boy, are they related. But that the word wisdom isn't in the text. And I'm really glad that our modern NIV uh, almost uh, got it right, where Solomon says, give me a lev shamea. That's the actual Hebrew word. Some people translate it as a discerning heart, which is what he did. Some translate that as wisdom, which is not true. Give me a heart that hears. I need to, if, if I'm going to govern your people, if I'm actually just going to live as anything, then Lord, I need to hear your voice. And the word shma in Hebrew, to hear, is also the biblical Hebrew word for obey. So give me a heart that hears, but also a heart that obeys. And those two words are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. What does Jesus say? Blessed is he who hears my words and does them. Those, link, those words are linked. We often forget that uh, those words are linked, particularly with the Protestant Reformation. We, as soon as you say the word do anything, you know, we start having heart palpitations. Okay? But uh, I'll quote Hebrews, 9, uh, Hebrews 5, 9 right now. That Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation to all who... Most people want to say believe. The actual word is obey. We've so conditioned ourselves to think that, it's, that obedience is bad and belief is good. Even demons believe. Give me a lev shamea. Perhaps real true wisdom is indeed listening to the Lord. And so that's we want to seek the Lord. We want to keep hearing his voice, whether we've neglected it and lost it and we're in a dark place or whether we're actually still walking with the Lord. We want to keep hearing his voice.
And so we come to our gospel portion, which is uh, the, the parables of Jesus. And um, for those that were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about parables, forgive me, we've got a whole lot of newcomers. So very briefly, parables are a unique teaching device to this land. You only find parables in the Synoptic Gospels and in rabbinic literature. You do not find parables in John. You don't find them in Paul. They're not in the church fathers. They're not in any Jewish writings outside the land of Israel. They're they're unique to this time period. And uh, one of our friends, a professor, uh, Steve Notley, he went and researched every single parable that's in, the, in rabbinic literature, 436, and he put them all in a book. And he discovered that they're all in Hebrew. So you've got a unique teaching device, unique to this land, in Hebrew. Even if the surrounding text is in Aramaic, as soon as you get to a parable, you switch to Hebrew. So Jesus most likely, even though I'm reading it in English, he didn't speak English, and uh, is probably teaching in Hebrew. But what's interesting about this, it gets even more interesting, is none of the parables have an ethnic marker. It's not a Jewish man went out into his field. It's a man. He went to a field. It's not, the, it's not a field in Israel. It's incredibly universal. So you have a unique teaching device in this land, in the language of the land, but with absolute universal application. And so... And what do you do with this? You teach about the kingdom of heaven. Because in the second temple period, they they saw the world in terms of the sovereignty of God. God was ruling and reigning. And it did not matter if there was a Roman soldier standing next to you, God could still be your king. Now to my dear brothers and sisters from uh, America, uh, we don't like kings over there. (laughs) They tend to have, you know, sort of, you know, they're anathema, okay? But in the Middle East, okay, the Middle East appreciates kingship. And, uh, and so the phrase developed in the late Second Temple period. The kingdom of heaven is like this. This is what it's like when God is ruling and reigning. And you have different types of uh, uh, parables that, that explain different things. And each of the parables has a shock there's something that makes you sit up and pay attention and go, well, that's just weird. You're going to have to explain that one. So, the parable of the mustard seed. What's the shock? That some farmer plants a bush in his field that allows the birds to come in and eat his crop. Farmers don't do that. What do farmers do with their fields? They clear them. You don't run around planting trees in your wheat field. So this is an agricultural shock. Your your, your disciples sitting there going, that's a really dumb farmer. What are you trying to say, Lord? You've, um, you've, You've piqued my interest. We've got a field, we've got a farmer, You've, 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 told, you've done the, the parable of the soils before. Now you're telling me that in the middle of the field we're deliberately planting a bush where the birds, which are the enemy to farmers, they are not your friend. Okay? Um, I grew up on a farm. Probably want to edit this next bit out. Because uh, what did we do to the crows that would come and eat our crops? Yep. 
get your 22 out and have a few pot shots. Okay? All the bird lovers are going, <gasps> evil. Well, but here, you got, you got a shock. And another shock, a woman gets an incredibly large amount of dough and puts leaven in it and mixes it all up. Now, we've, we've, we often get our little commentaries and they'll say, leaven is a symbol of sin. No, it's not. It, we, it, in some times, it's used as sin, but in other times, it is not. It's just an element that allows things to expand. The, the point, problem here is she's using all this valuable dough and not leaving any to make unleavened bread for the temple. What is she doing? What's wrong with these, this picture in the kingdom of heaven? And we sometimes get some of these things where, like the net, we catch good and bad fish together. Wheat and weeds are growing up together. What's the problem? Why have we got a field and the birds of the air are coming? Sometimes God allows okay, bad things to happen. One of our readings for the day, which we didn't read, but I'll mention it now, is Romans 8. And in Romans 8, uh, the passage is the, we often get so caught up in this discussion between free will and predestination. Okay, because God predestined you to good works, etc., etc. Except that we miss other parts of the point. We've been arguing about free will and predestination for 2,000 years. Do you know who doesn't argue about free will and predestination? Jewish people. <laughs> they just understand. Is it, is it free will or is it predestination? Yes. <laughs> and, and Paul, when he's talking, he says, all things work for good for those that love God. All things. Not all good things. All things. Sometimes bad things work for good. You see, the, the, the New Testament doesn't hide from Christians that bad stuff happens to us. It doesn't ignore that there's an enemy. The world has forgotten that there's an enemy. There is an enemy. You have an enemy. I've got an enemy. Guess what? He doesn't like us very much. That is true. There is a spirit world. There are angels and demons. When bad things happen, that doesn't mean that God's abandoned us. It's probably not even necessarily the other way around either. Sometimes the enemy just comes. But all things work together for good. The parables constantly teach that God is in control and he will separate, but not when we want. He'll do it when he wants and he's so gracious and so merciful, he'll do it at the end. Now, many of you have heard me say this before. When I came to Israel, in, I came here in 1998 I drove here from London. That describes a little bit about my character. But I came here in 1998 and I'm wandering around the streets of Jerusalem and I saw a book that said 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. You remember that? It was selling for half a shekel. <laughs> Obviously a lot of rubbish. And I'm looking at it going, wow, man, I am so glad he did not come in 1988 because I didn't get saved until 1991. So the, the, the long-suffering of God is such a good thing. So what does he require of us? With passion 
and with enthusiasm and with incredible self-sacrifice to seek the Lord and his kingship. And so we get the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl, where this is not about money. It's not about buying your way into heaven because you can't do that. It's about knowing that there's something so valuable that you'll, ta- you'll, you'll give all of your personal sacrifice to go find it. And that's the, that's the challenge for us today. That's the challenge for every one of us. Whether you are in a dark place and you need to cry out to the Lord and, and, and you can do that at any time. I was in England about three weeks ago and I happened to be sharing with a brother, uh, another reverend, and we had our collars on so we kind of looked the part and we were talking rather loudly about all kinds of theology and having a right old disagreement. And this man who was sitting in the bar drinking by himself came over and he said, I'm really sorry, but I I, I hear you guys talking. Can I join in? Okay. He was an atheist, but he was searching for something. And as we talked to him and as we shared, he eventually unpacked a little bit more about himself. He said, look, I've got a gambling problem and nothing I can do can stop it. I've got a wife, I've got two kids. I can't stop throwing my money away. What can I do? I've tried counseling, I've tried psychologists, I've tried psychiatrists, I've tried, you know, you name it. And we said, well, you've got to try Jesus. You know that. And you know even know why you're here. So we only want you to pray one prayer. We want you to pray. When you go back to your hotel room and, you, and before you go to bed, you pray one prayer. Lord, reveal yourself to me. And he will. Because if he doesn't, then he's not God. If that's the cry of your heart, seek me with all your heart and you will find me. That will happen. There are other, some of us who have just neglected the word for a bit. We've got, we got to get that hunger back for the word, like the man who, who finds the treasure and, and he, just, he just, I'm going to do everything to get on this field. You want to you fall in love with Jesus afresh. You want to dig deep into the, into the word. Not just to have a funky Bible study, but to put it into practice. You want to hear God's voice and you want to do God's voice. The world is going to tell us other things. It is going to send us other messages of what you should seek of what I should buy, of how our sh- what I should be, of how our society should be. There should only be the kingdom of heaven. God must be ruling and reigning over us. We need to allow him to do that. And he will chase back the darkness. He will set people free. He will defend you with his angels. And anything that happens will work for good for those that love God. So that's the challenge. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.